Well, good morning on this, uh, this what's cold for Georgia morning here. So I was uh, thinking about how cold it was. I have a friend, and he and I were going back and forth. He's in Ohio, and he was saying it was negative seven yesterday. So I didn't feel uh, quite as uh, quite as bad after hearing that. Well, if you haven't already opened your Bibles, yes, you can open them to Matthew chapter eleven as we continue our study through the. Go- I'm sorry, Matthew twelve as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. There is a propensity that really we all have toward what is termed confirmational bias. And that's a fancy term. It means that we view and we interpret the world around us in a way that confirms our existing beliefs or hypotheses. We'll even search out information that confirms those beliefs or hypotheses while ignoring or downplaying anything that would seem to contradict. That's our natural tendency. Uh, We find that in the things around us. We want to, especially when we've come to a firmly held belief, we want to hold on to it. And so we begin to continue to formulate thinking around that. Uh, We may even do that while downplaying, seemingly contradicting or obviously contradicting evidence. And yet it's destructive. It's dangerous to do this in some cases. Despite it being counterproductive, despite it being destructive, it's difficult to overcome, and it really takes serious effort, it takes humility to engage critically with one's own opinions, their beliefs and suppositions, particularly the longer you've held them. That's not to say you can't arrive at firmly held beliefs and even unalterable beliefs. For example, no amount of convincing or cajoling is going to get me to change my belief that two plus two equals four. There are likewise many clear first-order doctrines of Scripture that are not a matter of debate. And while I'm happy to engage and discuss and instruct and teach in them, they are not for personal interpretation or opinion. But for many areas of life, it is wise to operate with humility and gentleness, understanding our limitations and capacity for error and imperfection. This morning... The reason I bring this up is because we encounter a group of persons, we've seen them before, who demonstrate how dangerous and even self-destructive operating with this confirmation bias can be without any humility. In Matthew 12, the Pharisees observe a supernatural healing of a man who is blind and mute. However, the wickedness of the Pharisees prevents them from being able to interpret this in any way that would point to Christ as the Messiah or God. They will do anything they can to ignore the obvious because it doesn't fit what they want to believe. For most of the Jewish leaders, no matter what Jesus did, they would find a way to interpret it in the most heinous way possible. In this passage, their pride reaches the pinnacle of wickedness as they profess that Jesus is in league with Satan. Jesus' response to these slanderous accusations provides us with further insight into the nature and the character of the Son of God, his power and authority over Satan, his kingdom, the lack of neutrality that exists in this struggle between the kingdom of God and kingdom of Satan. So read along with me, if you would, Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 30. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed. They were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, 
this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Any city or kingdom divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. This is the first half of Jesus' response as we'll look in subsequent week and weeks ahead at his continued response to this slanderous accusation of the Pharisees. You may remember in the preceding verses, those that preceded our text this morning, that we observed a couple of weeks ago the tender and gentle nature of the Messiah who will not put out a smoldering wick or break a bruised reed. The one in whom exists the hope of the entire world, Jew and Gentile alike. This morning, however, our attention turns not to the bruised reed or the dimly burning wick, but to the hard-hearted religious leaders whose whitewashed tombs and, as they're later described even in this passage, uh, this section, brood of vipers. Persons who, far from considering themselves broken and spiritually impoverished, see themselves as spiritually self-sufficient. Their pride and their arrogance knows no bounds as they seek to destroy and pronounce judgment against the Son of God himself. Matthew 20, verse 22 of chapter 12 provides the occasion for this section of Scripture. And it's the healing of the blind and deaf, uh, blind and mute man. This is not the only blind person who's healed, not the only mute person who is healed. And yet it's, I guess perhaps what's remarkable about it is how quickly Matthew passes over this miraculous event. Here's a man who is blind. He's instantaneously able to see. He's unable to speak. He can instantaneously speak, but Matthew almost breezes over that. As miraculous as it is, it's not the focus of this section. It merely becomes the catalyst for the accusations of the Pharisees and Jesus' response. Ironically as well, and I think it's interesting how these things come into play, is this man receives sight and he receives speech, right? We turn to the Pharisees and they are spiritually blind and they are unable to profess truth about Christ. The irony is thick in this passage. Verses 23 and 24 provide us with the contrasting responses of the crowds and the religious leaders. And the reaction of the crowd there indicates that they did not recognize who Jesus was. It's really not a surprise. We've encountered this already. We'll continue to encounter it through his ministry. These questions, these confusion over who Jesus is. The question they ask here is probably better phrased in English as, is it, is it possible that this really is the son of David? In other words, it's not purely skeptical or completely skeptical. There is inherent within it a hope and a possibility. They, they're leaving open the possibility that maybe, hope beyond hope, this actually is the son of David. 
There's a hopefulness in the incredulity of their statement, a sense of this is really too good to be true. But still hoping that somehow it might be. They're not yet believing, but they are hopeful and perhaps even a bit expectant at this point. If we just wait a little longer, it'll become obvious to us. The phrase Son of David, as we've discussed previously, is a messianic title for the coming one who is promised from the line of David, the true and better David, who would be the fruition and bring to fruition the promises and the hope of the Davidic covenant, who would sit one day on the throne of David and rule not only over Israel but over all the world, who would also assume within it the promises of, all the, of the Abrahamic covenant. And there, there must have been a sense of awe and sobriety as they contemplated that this could, we're not quite believing it yet, but could perhaps, however unlikely, be the son of David, the one who would implement the long-awaited promises of God. As those murmurs and whispers started going through the crowd, the Pharisees could have none of this. And so next to the crowd, perhaps interspersed amongst the crowd, stood the Pharisees. And while the crowds did not recognize Jesus, they did not demonstrate the hard-hearted rejection of these religious leaders that we see in verse 24. The but with regard to the Pharisees and the resulting opposition contrasts sharply with the amazement of the people. While Matthew presents the response of the Pharisees, this response was not offered in the hearing or the proximity of Jesus. They're probably answering those around them in the crowd. They've agreed upon their answer in terms of what they're going to say when Jesus heals next, whenever he performs another miracle. We're going to say that he's in league with Satan. Verse 25 actually indicates that another miracle takes place in this passage, and this is the one that we're really focusing on. Jesus reads the minds of the Pharisees. The Pharisees cannot deny the supernatural spiritual power of Jesus' miracles and his ministry. They recognize at this point, we've got to acknowledge it's supernatural. We just got to tie him with evil supernatural. We got to tie him with Satan. But in their pride and their hubris, they will not stop, even for a moment, to consider whether these murmurs and these whisperings of the crowd could be true, that this is perhaps the son of David. So they act quickly to snuff out this spark of hope. And they attempt to scare the people from him by aligning him with Satan. Those, these Pharisees continue the strategy they began back in chapter 9, verse 34, of condemning the person and the works of Christ by aligning him with Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. That is Satan, the devil. Beelzebul, as we noted previously when we looked at it first in chapter 9, was a name used originally to refer to a pagan god, Ekron, who was called Beelzebub, not Beelzebul, but Beelzebub. And it was a term that Beelzebub, meaning Lord of the Flies. But it appears that the Jews, they further corrupted it. It Really, they did a play on words to make a mockery of it and changed it from Beelzebub to Beelzebul, which instead of Lord of Flies means Lord of Dung. They wanted to insult, they wanted to deride this heathen deity. And over time, that term began to be applied not just to an evil being generically, became synonymous with the evil being, the ruler over all evil beings, that is Satan or the devil himself. So when they call him Beelzebul, they're calling him 
they're aligning him with Satan. And there's really no greater verbal insult the religious leaders, these Pharisees, can leverage than to try and associate Jesus with Satan. They've reached into the, the very bottom of their insults, scraping the bottom of the barrel and throwing the last and the worst of the insults at them. These Pharisees, they, according to the text, at least it appears, they responded quickly to those murmurings and those whispers in the crowd, but they responded too quickly. As we'll see in a moment, inadvertently condemning themselves and their own followers. However, I want us to just note how they responded. It's just instructive. It's not one of explanation. They, they didn't attempt to deal with anything about Jesus or how he was wrong or how he was theologically in error. They didn't try to instruct. They didn't try to debate. They didn't try to discuss. They didn't try to teach and lead the people. Rather, they name-called him. They just slandered him. The aphorism, when the debate is lost, slander becomes the tool of the loser, is here validated. They have nothing else they can debate, nothing else they can say, so they're at their wit's end. All we can do is slander and attack. Though the religious leaders will continue in their attempts to trick Jesus, there's really, at this point, from this point on, there is no more attempt to engage in earnest conversation and debate only to destroy and murder, as we saw back in verse 14 of chapter 12. The remaining verses in this passage show Jesus' response to this brash and foolish slander. It goes beyond verse 30, as we'll look at again in the weeks to come. And as Jesus responds, he exposes within these religious leaders their folly, their true origin and nature, and ultimately their true allegiance. And so verse 25 opens with Jesus knowing their thoughts. Omniscient and aware, Jesus is able to perceive the inward thoughts and motives of these Pharisees. He's not caught off guard. He's not surprised. Fully cognizant, fully aware of what they're thinking. And though it probably would not have taken a mind reader to recognize the hatred that would have been evident in their faces and body language and slanderous words, it takes a supernatural act to read their thoughts. You know, what's really interesting about this is Jewish leaders actually had some teaching regarding those who could read another's thoughts, whether because they actually had some supernatural ability or whether they just were this wise and perceptive that they could perceive what a person was thinking before they even said it. They would normally characterize such a person as a prophet, as a pious, as a religious person, as a righteous person. Not so here, though, going against their own tradition, their own teaching, they label him as in league with Satan. And again, you might think that when these Pharisees realize that Jesus knows what they're thinking, if they really thought he was in league with Satan, they would have been frightened. And if not, they would have at least been a little bit more humble. But no. Jesus, in his response, utters what sounds like a proverbial statement. It may well have been a common maxim or truism, though we don't have any direct evidence of this. Either way, whether common or not, Jesus states an obvious truth, and he appeals to simple and sound reason. Jesus iterates that a kingdom that is divided against itself, that is feuding with itself, cannot function or exist for long. It is doomed for failure. It will collapse. Notice, too, again, by way of instruction, that Jesus was not baited into name-calling and slander. 
He instead, even with the most ridiculous, demeaning, slanderous of attacks, he responds calmly, thoughtfully, to disarm the attackers. And while this isn't the main point to be learned, it is nevertheless helpful implication as we seek to learn to imitate Christ in all things. We notice he doesn't lose his temper. He did not slander in return. Even where he uses harsher words, like those in verse 34, where he calls them a brood of vipers, he provides clear, unassailable evidence for the veracity of the description. He doesn't just throw it out in a slanderous way without any evidence of it. In other words, a harsh descriptor may be necessary, but make certain you have carefully laid the foundation for it so that it's not perceived as merely name-calling, that the description itself is valid. Jesus' response here draws upon an obvious truth. How can it be possible that Satan is the one destroying himself? It's utterly ridiculous. A kingdom that has divided itself cannot stand. Well, in the case of the Pharisees, we know there was no truth to this claim that Jesus was of Satan, the ruler of demons, because he cast out demons. In fact, they could not be further from reality. The Pharisees have responded brashly. They have not stopped to think about the implications of their accusation. They really responded way too quickly. As Jesus goes on to point out in verse 27, if the only explanation for exorcism, for the casting out of the demon, is supernatural, as they clearly acknowledge, if the only possible explanation of casting out a demon is that it has to be not only supernatural but by Satan, then how do they explain the exorcisms done by their own sons? Your sons is a common reference to a disciple or follower, here to the followers or disciples of the Pharisees. In fact, you can think about the way Paul describes Timothy. How does he describe Timothy, his disciple? Later on, he describes him as my son. Your sons is a common reference to a disciple or follower. In fact, many historians have noted that among the followers of the religious leaders, exorcism in the first century was a thriving business and practice, both in pagan and Jewish societies. Those performing it in Jewish societies, they would employ complex incantations, many of which they, they said they tried to attribute them to Solomon, as if this was some erudite special wisdom that had been passed down from the wisest of all men. They had magical charms. They even had visual effects. In fact, we encounter some of those Jewish exorcists in Acts 19.13, the seven sons of Sceva. Notice there that the language is the same. It's the sons of Sceva. It's unlikely that these were his seven actual sons. These were seven disciples of Sceva, the high priest. And so we see these very persons that Jesus is describing, these these followers of you, these disciples of yours. Yet notice too that compared to how the Jewish exorcists would have operated with their lengthy incantations, their magical spells, their visual displays, their fog machines, or whatever it was that they had, Jesus' power is far more superior. With a word, he cast out demons. He needs only a word, not an incantation, not some effect. And if Jesus' stronger authority and power is of Satan, then what does that say of the lesser power of these sons or disciples of yours, you Pharisees? Jesus has turned the tables and he asks, on what basis are you even able to make this claim? You've spoken too quickly. 
Are you saying that you and your disciples have also been working with Satan all along? That's the implication here. That if it has to be supernatural, but the only possible supernatural explanation for casting out a demon is that it's by Satan, then what have you and your disciples been doing all these years? And the answer is obviously, of course not. Our disciples aren't casting out by demons on behalf of Satan. So the reality is, neither is Christ. And since it's not Satan, then it must be of God. And in demonstrating that it must be of God, Jesus exposes the nature or origin of these religious leaders and their slanderous lies. What is it that John says in John 8, verse 44? He says, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. They've demonstrated their heritage. While Jesus has implicitly exposed the nature and the origin, the heritage of these religious leaders, that they are of their father, the devil, he explicitly notes something even more profound in verse 28. Having made it clear that he is not in allegiance with Satan, which by implication would mean he is in allegiance with God and his spirit, which he says explicitly, then Jesus says, the reign of God has come upon you. Notice the contrast. Rather than a spirit of wickedness, it is the spirit of God that is at work through Jesus. The reign of God was to be ushered in with the messianic son of David. So David is, uh, Jesus has now brought full circle this whole interaction. He's brought it back to those words uttered in amazement by the crowds who said, Is it possible that this is the son of David? By saying that, the reign of God has drawn near. He is saying the son of David has drawn near. He's answering the incredulous question of the crowds. The son of David has arrived and with him the dawning of the kingdom of God. Now we have to pause here and ask what exactly does it mean that the kingdom of God has come upon them? Or the kingdom of God has drawn near? We've already seen language similar to this. In Matthew 3, 2, we see it's John the Baptist preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then we see Jesus when he commissioned the 12 apostles. What did he tell them to go out preaching? Immediately, go to these Galilean cities and preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. With this in mind, turn a little bit further into Matthew to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, down in verse 23, there's another encounter Jesus has where he teaches concerning the kingdom of God. And this is near the end of Jesus' ministry. And notice what he says. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, with God all things are possible. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
Notice in verse 28 that Jesus speaks now of a future reign of the kingdom of God. Now, how are we to understand the nearness language in chapters 3, 10, and 12 with the future language of chapter 19, not to mention the rest of the New Testament and Revelation? It's a fair question. It's a hard question. It's one that Christians have wrestled with and sought to answer through centuries. And I really believe it's best and most simply answered by identifying what was not previously recognized by the Old Testament prophets. Namely, how the rejection of Jesus by the Jews would lengthen the dawning of this kingdom. Yes, it would come, but this dawn is going to stretch on for a while. That there would be a time of the Gentiles preceding the rising of God's kingdom in its fullness. That there is a spacing and a timing and events that bring in the fullness of the age to come. That age to come which began with the mystery of the church. Continues with the millennial reign on this earth by the Messiah and the son of man on David's throne. And culminates in the eternal reign in the new heavens and the new earth. And what I think is neat is when we think about son of David language. You realize how much of a picture God gave us of this in the Old Testament. Think about David himself. Think about his life. David was a type and he was a foreshadow of the Messiah himself. But if you remember, David was anointed king while he was a young shepherd boy. And so then he immediately ascended the throne, right? No, he had to wait. He was anointed and there was this long duration of waiting before he ascended the throne. Though he was anointed, though he had followers, though he began to exercise some level of authority, he had to wait. There was this time period of waiting after the inauguration of the king. And the anointing of the king. In the New Testament, the kingdom has come near in the person of Jesus, but his ascension to the throne of David and all that accompanies this must wait a while longer in the plan of God, just as it did with David. And yet it would be wrong to say the kingdom has not arrived at all. That would run completely contrary to what Matthew says, what John the Baptist preached. So in what way has the kingdom arrived? Well, first it's back up and ask, what is a kingdom? There's really three principal or constituent parts of a kingdom. You have to have a ruler, you have to have a reign, and you have to have a realm. It's an easy way to remember what your three R's, a ruler, a reign, and a realm. That is, a, you've got to have the person who's going to rule. You have to have the, the reign, that is the authority that accompanies that, the power that's ushered from him, and then you have to have a realm over which you reign. The kingdom has come near both in the person, that is the ruler of Christ, along with a limited display of the power of this reign. But the geographical domain of the kingdom, in fact the very throne upon which he's going to sit, are still yet future. As Jesus says in Matthew 19. The full exercise of the power of the reign has not even been seen. They're, they're experiencing now, and we've talked about this, they're experiencing now the foreshadow of the kingdom power. They're watching sickness being healed, diseases being reversed, physical maladies being healed instantaneously, people being raised from the dead. But the full power isn't there because we know at the end of times there will be no tears, there will be no death. People are still dying, people are still crying. So the kingdom hasn't come in its fullness, but they're experiencing some of its power, hints of it, foreshadowings, the dawning of this kingdom. But it's not yet every tear and every sadness that will eventually be wiped away in this world. 
there are still aspects of God's reign at work today, though the kingdom is yet to be consummated in its fullness. The most obvious is in the deliverance of persons from the power of Satan into the authority and citizenship of the kingdom of God. And this is, Jesus really turns his attention there in verse 29. Here Jesus describes the act of rescuing persons from the domain of darkness, and he describes it as plundering the strong man's house. Jesus quickly shifts metaphors. As one commentator notes, his work of casting out demons and setting people free are like the act of plundering a strong man's house and taking his goods. First, you have to bind the strong man in order to do that. Otherwise, he's going to try and fight you. And you have to be stronger than him. Only after you bind such a foe will you be able to plunder against his will and to take what he previously owned. And it might sound a little strange to our ears, but Jesus entered the world to plunder what had been the domain of Satan. Jesus is snatching if you will, human creatures away from Satan and restoring them and the power of the Spirit, transferring them from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son or into his own kingdom. And while God always preserved persons who were faithful to him, it was through Christ coming to earth and defeating the power of sin and death that the floodgates were opened. Multitudes of persons began to come in from the Gentiles of all people. And so this world and Satan's domain continues to be plundered as persons are rescued from his domain. Some have rightly pointed out that this term bind, of binding the strong man, is used elsewhere in reference to Satan, notably in Revelation 20. In Revelation 20, there's verbal similarity, and uh, it's really interesting. Uh, And some have supposed that the binding here, because it's the same word to bind, and we see Satan being bound, that it must be the exact same event being described here as well as Revelation 20. And I think it's important to note those types of similarities, because they're there for a reason. Um, and, And I don't think they're accidental, but neither do I believe that a clear reading of the text allows us to see them as the same. And it's worth noting, since there's a number of persons who see this as being the same binding as Revelation 20, and yet, on the, on the flip side of that, we, would be dealing, we wouldn't be dealing honestly with the text in Matthew if we said there was no level of binding. So what is this binding that's happening in Matthew 12, and what is the binding of Revelation 20? Go ahead and turn with me, if you would, to Revelation 20. We'll read just the first three verses. We could read a bunch more, but just in those first three verses. John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hands, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. Makes it very clear. Here's a metaphor. Here's the explanation. And he bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss. He shut it. He sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And then John goes on and continues. Notice, though, that in Revelation, Satan is bound with a great chain. He's thrown into an abyss, which is then shut and sealed with a key for a thousand years. So that Satan could not deceive the nations any longer. It's it's pretty apparent that Satan's power is completely stripped away from him, and he's out of the scene for that thousand years or that period of time. The binding of Revelation 20, 1 through 3, is pretty specific, and right away we know differences between this description in Matthew 12, 29. 
In one case, Satan is bound so that his house may be plundered of individuals. In another, it's so that he cannot deceive the nations. Then we continue, and you begin to see more dissimilarities when you compare it to Revelation 20. We, we see and we remember that, well, during Jesus' ministry, Satan wasn't shut away. I mean, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, what happens? He goes out in the desert to fast and pray, and he gets interrupted. By who? Satan. Satan shows up to tempt him. So Satan is not bound. He's not off this locked away during that time. Jesus describes the ongoing, of work, the ongoing work of Satan in deceiving in Matthew 13 in the midst of his ministry in 13, 38 through 40 in the parable there. Well, then what about at the end of his ministry? Well, at the end of his ministry, Jesus said that who was it who worked in the heart of Judas to betray him? It was Satan. Very explicitly in John 13, 2, Satan put into the heart of Judas to betray him. So Satan was at work. Even after Jesus' death and resurrection, Satan has continued to work. In Acts 13.10, Paul identifies persons as being the sons of the devil, as does John in 1 John 3.10. In Ephesians 4.27, we're told not to give the devil an opportunity. In Ephesians 6.11, we're told to beware of the schemes of the devil, stand firm against those schemes. 1 Timothy 3.7 describes the ongoing snares of the devil. James 4, 7, we're told to resist the devil. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8 that the devil is a roaring lion going about this world seeking whom he may devour. And then in Revelation 2, 10, it is the devil who is about to throw some of the believers in prison. And John in 1 John 5, 19 sums it up nicely when he says the world is under the control of the evil one who is Satan. It becomes readily apparent that whatever the binding of Matthew 12, 29 means, it cannot mean the binding of Revelation 20 where Satan is locked away. So they have to mean different things. I would suggest in light of these differences, it's better to see this specific binding of Satan in Matthew 12 as a precursor to that binding in Revelation 20. Just as we see the dawning of the kingdom, the introduction of Jesus' power and his authority over sickness, over death, as a hint of the kingdom to come. So this binding is a hint of that future binding that will come on Satan. Again, I have no problem acknowledging that Satan's authority has been curtailed or bound in some ways. The writer of Hebrews does that. He says that in Hebrews 2 where he writes, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through his death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. But that curtailing of power over sin and death is not the same as the binding of Revelation 20, verse, verses 1 through 3, where Satan is removed from this earth, cast into abyss, sealed with lock and key, and has no influence on the nations of this world. Verse 30 concludes this first half of Jesus' response and his description of Satan's binding. And he does it by shifting metaphors yet again to one of allegiance. And maybe it's not such a big shift because he's already been talking about it, dominions and kingdoms. He's calling and creating a separation here, presumably, and I would say obviously, between allegiance to God or allegiance to Satan. In verse 30, we're reminded that the battle is raging. It's been raging since sin entered the world in Genesis 3. Really, it's been raging since Satan, that 
beautiful, glorious angel was created and yet thought in his heart that to take God's place and was cast down. And the battle has been raging. What we're reminded of, what Jesus draws our attention to, is that in this conflict, there is no neutral territory. There is no Switzerland. There's no demilitarized zone. This is a zero-sum conflict. You are either for or against the kingdom of God and Christ. As so many reading and commenting on this passage through the centuries have stated, there is no middle ground with Jesus. And while this does conclude with a weighty and somber tone, it's not the whole story. Look carefully at verse 30. Notice the second half of that verse. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Do you see what motif is being used? What theme is being drawn out? Think again of where you talk and think about Jesus describing gathering together. Who, what does he gather together? His sheep. The scattering will be the scattering of those sheep who are not his. This is the motif, this is an allusion to the motif of the great shepherd. The caring shepherd, the one who does not break a bruised reed, who does not put out a dimly burning wick. Picture of gatherings out of sheep gathering to their shepherd, contrasted to the scattering of the sheep who do not know the shepherd, who do not recognize his voice, who do not know him. And so the statement contains that great motif of the shepherd that runs throughout all of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament alike. And it once again calls to mind that God is sobering, as heavy, as weighty, as serious as this is, God did not send Christ into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him would be saved. This whole statement in verse 30 really leads us to ask this morning, this is where we'll end it, and pause Jesus' response with, can the world tell which side you belong to? If you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, does the world know it? Do your neighbors know it? Do your coworkers know it? Do your friends know it? Do your family know it? This week I was reminded of the St. Bartholomew Day's Massacre. It took place in and around Paris. And the massacre of Roman, uh, by the Roman Catholics of Protestant believers. Some numbers put it upwards of 30,000 Protestant believers, those who believed in uh, Jesus Christ and him being the only means of salvation through faith alone, not through works, not through the Roman Catholic Church. And so they plotted, and it had been a long, really, the plot came together around the marriage of, king, uh, of Henry, king of Navarre. But as I was thinking about this, as I was uh, listening and reading to the reading on this this week I it really tied in well with this because in the days and weeks leading up to that massacre what they began to do is they began reaching out throughout all of Paris Paris is a big city and began who are the Protestants even though it was somewhat dangerous it wasn't as dangerous as it was at other times but it was still dangerous to be known as a Protestant you know, they knew who they were they stood out the neighbors recognized them 
Their friends recognized them. People down the street recognized them. They knew who they were. So in the days and weeks leading up to that massacre, their names were being added to the list because of their profession of Christ alone for salvation. Because their faith was known by those around them, because they had declared their allegiance, and there were no questions. And the question again is, is our allegiance to Christ so clear and so obvious that our names would be added to that list? For those thousands of believers who died that morning, the bell chimed out at 3 o'clock, and at that point, the cry throughout the city was heard, kill, kill, kill. And again, upwards of potentially 30,000 Christians met their end. I was reminded also of Latimer Ridley, who though murdered at a different time on the night before he went to the stake, had a, had a meal, and he seemed perfectly content. And there was a shopkeeper's wife who was having supper with him, and she was crying. And, and he said, don't, don't cry. He said, though, though breakfast will be bitter, my supper will be sweet. Speaking of his pending death the coming morning. And all those other believers would have experienced that that supper in the presence of Christ the next day, all because they had declared their allegiance and they were known as followers of Christ. And so does the world know where your allegiance lies? If you're here this morning, you've never come to Christ. You've never been able to call on him as a shepherd. If you've never gathered to him, to the one who offers forgiveness from sins, then please do that this morning. Believe on him. Cast your hope on him. There may not be a tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Come to God through Christ Jesus. He won't turn you away. There's, there's no sin you've committed which God will not forgive through Christ Jesus. Just put your faith in Christ. Not in your works, not in your ability to please God, but by turning to Christ. We need to remind ourselves sometimes of that even for those of us who have come to Christ. We can't re-earn favor with God by doing the right thing. We still have to put all of our trust in Christ. Yes, there are right things to do, and we need to be busy about that. But it's all because of our faith in Christ. We've said it before, is it's our faith and our love for Christ that should be motivating, be kindling afresh the earnestness to do good deeds and to obey. But putting our faith and our love and our hope and our trust in Christ. As we conclude this morning, I think the encouragement is to renew our resolve to gather closer to Christ, to make certain that our allegiance is known through our preaching of the gospel, for our love for the one another, and then our love for those around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder this morning. Thank you for the example that was so clearly laid for us. Thank you for the words that have been provided, been preserved in Scripture so that we would, we would know of your love for us, we would know of Christ, that we would know how better to love him through our obedience. Pray that we would be about that and that there would be no mistaking where our allegiance lies. Father, we pray that for each one of us it would be said, well done, good and faithful servant. Pray these things in your name. Amen.